Hey, this is Mark Slaughter of the band Slaughter, and you're listening to Focus on Metal, where all things are said. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, bringing you yet another edition of Focus on Metal. Got a pretty straightforward one for you this week as uh, Richie sits down with Mark Slaughter to talk all about the first Slaughter release, Stick It To You. So that came out in uh, 1990, January 27th, 1990, if you want to be freaking exact about it. And uh, it actually racked up uh, U.S. two times platinum, went platinum in Canada, had uh, three singles off of it that pretty much everybody knows, uh, Flight of the Angels, and then also Up All Night and Spend My Life. So, uh, again, this was, you know, the the guys of Slaughter, at least Dana and uh, Mark, coming out of the ashes of the Vinnie Vincent invasion, and uh, boom, form Slaughter, pulled this puppy out, and uh, as I said, Richie will be sitting down with Mark this week talking all about that. So can't be more straightforward than that one. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Richie and Mark Slaughter. Hi, Richie. Hey, Mark. Nice to talk to you again. Same here. How are you? I'm good. Um, how's quarantine suiting you? Uh, just fine. Just getting all kinds of things done that were needed to be done around here. And and uh, it's a lifetime, it seems, of, of catching up of things that need to happen, so everything's working out. Mm. How about you? Uh, not too bad. So the reason I have you on, and I don't know whether anyone has done this with you yet this year, it's the 30th anniversary of this, the debut record. Right, um, right. So I'm going to go in depth on just that album, more or less. Um, okay. It, I, I've loved the record since 1990. Um, I never had a chance to see you guys live because I'm living in Ireland, and, and you never played right. there. So, uh, what's your memory like of that time in general? Well, it was, uh, you know, I was a young lad at the time. Um, I came right out of the Vinnie Vincent invasion and uh, uh, had a lot of musical, uh, how should I put it, I had a lot of musical freedom uh, when we did the the Slaughter record. Um, when uh, Just in the fact that... Uh, I was picked up by a leading member agreement. We knew everybody at the label. They knew what we were capable of doing. With our, we did our demos. They loved the demos and said, yeah, just go ahead and do the record yourself. It was just a very carefree time to write the songs, demo the songs, and just put together a record. And uh, the record came together really quick. It was real simple. And... Um, you know, it was, it was good times. It was really good times. It was the end of an era. You know, uh, it was 1988. It's actually in New Year's Eve in 1988 going into 89 that we did the uh, the first demos of that record. And uh, then we finished the record mid-89, and then we held on to it for six months to get a marketing plan for the record. So we had the record finished, but we wanted to make sure the videos were there and, and everything was done properly. And, you know, we, we really, we, we treated it like a business, but at the same time we treated it like a love because it was our own. And, uh, we had a good time, uh, um, making the music and being completely involved from front to end. In fact, I think we're the only band from that era that produced, wrote, produced, and still perform our songs today. Mark, what was going through your head the night the Vinnie Vincent invasion ended? Um, were you nervous about the future, or did you already have a plan on what you were going to do straight after? Well, you know, I had, I knew I had a record deal uh, in, the, in the wings um, because they had told me that. In fact, they told me finish it out with Vinnie Vincent. We're going to pick up your option, um, which is a leaving member agreement that I had to sign. Everybody had to sign it. And uh, ultimately, it was from Steve Stevens that uh, got me my record deal because when he left Billy Idol, um, Jeff uh, Aldrich, um, who 
produced like UFO records. Uh, A&R guy made everybody sign a leaving member agreement. And uh, so I had to sign that leaving member agreement. And uh, part of that agreement was under the terms of the contract that was already in place for all the people that were under those artists, you had to um, come up with some music. And if they liked the music, then you had a deal. So they liked the music we came up with, and uh, I had a deal. Um, did you consider going back and teaching guitar? Um, no, I, I, you know, I really wasn't focused on guitar at all at that point. I was kind of focused on songs. I was focused on um, writing music that people would relate to. Now, ultimately, what you try to do is write write music that becomes that uh, soundtrack for people's life. You know, like you know Zeppelin and and the stuff that I grew up listening to, those songs just take me back to, you know, being a kid again and to to good times and to friends. And, you know, it, it, music just becomes that, that old friend that's always there and always takes you to that warm spot. And uh, that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do was write music that was timeless. It would, you know, do that. Mm. Did you have any other bands reach out to you to audition for them? Uh, believe it or not, Steve Stevens. Um, he was putting together a band called Atomic Playboy. Uh-huh. Atomic Playboys. And uh, I went up to New York and I met up with Steve and we talked and, and he's an incredible guitar player. And and uh, I was like, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. You know, I had my own deal at the time. But uh, uh, Warner Brothers courted me to, to go up and, and meet with him and I did and and I still, uh, you know, still respect him to this day. What a great player! Mm. I actually loved that Atomic Playboys record. I was listening to it last week. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, what? he's. In fact, the audition was Will Will Smith or um, Will Lee on uh, bass, and it was Tommy Price on drums and and Steve Stevens. So it was a killer little rocking band there. You know? mm. Do you remember what you sang? Um, we just kind of sang, I think a couple of Zeppelin tunes and I, and I realized it was kind of a, kind of a, uh, baptism by fire moment. I realized that I knew more guitar parts than I actually knew the lyrics to many, many songs, you know, hmm. because I was originally a guitar player. So I was kind of like, I, I don't know the lyrics to a lot of these things, but you know, and, uh, but yeah, we did some Zeppelin and and jammed out a little bit on some. I think it was Aretha Franklin stuff that I knew, and, and yeah, it was fun stuff. Mm. So getting Slaughter together, I I take it Dana already knew that he was going to go with you and play with you. Yeah, yeah, Dana and I, we both knew that. But uh, we, we both knew that collectively that we were, you know, a force. I think that when I first met Dana, I knew that. And, uh, you know, we went out and, uh, wrote the songs and, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that you just, you know, we, we still talk every, every day. Um, you know, whether you were playing or not, we are still in touch. It's, it's kind of a, you know, that brotherhood, you find people that you walked your life with. And that's certainly somebody I've spent a lot of time and walked through a lot of life with. Mm. Now, Mark, did the label want a name guitar player to join the band? No, they they didn't. Uh, they didn't really care as long as the music was there. They they you know they didn't care who we got. And you know, I was in a search for. You know, it's odd that you you know I look at things very analytical, and one of the things that I focused on is there's always. Four, there's four figures that always work in music, whether it be the Beatles, Van Halen, or whatever. And that's it's a family structure, which is a mother figure, father figure, good kid and bad kid. So you always have the strong personalities. You know, if you look at Led Zeppelin, you know, you had Robert Plant have more of the feminine thing, and Jimmy Page was the, was the, the father figure, and... Then there was John Paul Jones, who was a good kid, and Bonham, who was a bad kid. And you look in the Beatles, it's the same type of thing. You look at Van Halen, same type of thing. So, you know, it's usually really strong. And and in that side, 
unless it's, you know, for instance, Tina Turner, who's just a really strong mother figure. So when we put the band together, we were looking for a good kid and a bad kid. And that's what, I, I, that's what we were trying to do when we did that. And obviously in their talents, but the psychological side, that was something that I really looked for. So when we walked into this, it was very important to me to know that the guys we brought into this band, we could rub elbows with, that they were talented, that they had the same influence as we did. And, and it just gelled. It was just, it was a good time. Huh. We had spoken to Doug Aldrich as our, one of our uh, guitar players at one time. We were trying to get Doug to do it. And Ronnie Dio was talking to him at the same time. And then he decided he was going to do Lion at that point. And then uh, I, I met Tim, and, and Tim was the guy. Oh, how did you know Tim? How, how did you hear about him? I met Tim at, at all places. I met him at a, a barbecue, a friend's barbecue for a birthday. And uh, he was on the grill, and he told me he was a guitar player, and you know he knew my work. And, and uh, after we were done just kind of talking, um, he's a real funny guy, very upbeat, and I heard him play, and I was like, wow, this guy's really good. So I had him come down to uh, Cherokee Studios, and uh, Striper was in one room, and John Sykes was in another, and Dana and I were working on another group at the time, and Tim walked in with a little Gallium Kruger, and, and he just tore it up. He was the guy. Oh, was Blass already in the band? No, we were still looking for drummers who we were going to go with. And the only other named drummer that was that audition for slaughter was nick menza oh wow from megadeth that's right that's right he was the other guy in the running he was a great drummer wow i i i know i know he's done a lot of records of megadeth i have a hard time picturing him playing your music though well that was he was a really good drummer he could do pretty much anything but he didn't seem like he fit with a happy-go-lucky, you know, whether it was, you know, again, the people who we've structured or, or thought of ourselves as was kind of the, you know, we loved the Zeppelin stuff. We had loved the um, the suite, you know, of course, ACDC. I was really heavy influenced by Motown. So it's like he wasn't really that guy. But, yeah, what a great player he was. Oh, oh. So when you and Dana started writing the songs, was there any ideas from All Systems Go that you revisited? No, uh, nothing that was written in that time frame. Kind of when I stepped out, I was like, okay, I got to get writing. And uh, I had uh, kind of the verse chorus idea of Fly the Angels. And, uh, and up all night, I had the music too. I had the, the riff idea. And, uh, you know, collectively, we just kind of, you know, just fell together. Hmm. Um, was it just you and Dana that did the songs, or did Tim and Blass add anything to the songwriting at all? Um, no, it was just really more Strum and I. I mean, those guys put their flavor on everything. But uh, it was really, the songs were written in, uh, by Dana and I. Hmm. Now, the first song you and Dana wrote for this album, did it make the record? Can you remember? Oh yeah, I mean, in the first the first uh, bunch of songs that we did, um, there was Eye to Eye, there was uh, Up All Night and Fly the Angels. I believe uh, the Days Gone By was in that, um, just a rough idea. But that ended up being the second record because we didn't really have the structure of the song as of yet. Hmm. And is that the demo that the record company heard to to sign you? Are you were, uh, you were yeah. already signed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was they they once they heard a song, their whole thing was is make sure that they we we had the songs, and if we had the songs, then there would be no outside writers, and there'd be no outside, you know. And and we had the songs, so it just became a creative freedom that we had. Again, the Christmas was a was a small label, but it was a large independent. It just depends on how you looked at it. And uh, Chris Wright, who was a Chris and Chrysalis, um, was a visionary. He's the one who started a management company because he couldn't get Jethro Tull signed. So he said, you know, I'll just I'll just start a label. And that's how Chrysalis Records was started. 
what's it, Chris Wright and Terry Ellis, the Chris and the Chrysalis, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, that's, how, that's how it was started. Uh-huh. Now, one of the things the producer has to do, it's not only the songs, they got to pick, pick the studio and deal with the budgets and all that. Was that something that you let Dana handle a lot of, or did you get involved in that as Dana, well? Yeah, Dana, Dana was very, uh, um, he was very, very uh, good with, with uh, the studio stuff. I mean, I had done pretty elaborate demos, uh, you know, as a, as a guitar teacher in local bands in Vegas, but Dana had worked in the studio with uh, Ed Pasha, so he knew the studios in LA, which we recorded at. And so we ended up doing things really cheap. The recording cost for Stick It To You was $16,000. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so we, we basically treated it like, let's just try to keep it everything we can keep, do it as cheap as we can, wasn't the glamorous place that, you know, where you walk in and there's, you know, you know, some hot girl bringing you, you know, chocolate covered strawberries every five minutes. It really wasn't that, that type of a process for us. We always went into the smallest rooms in the studios. We never went into big rooms. The only big room that we were in was Tasha to record the drums. And then we went into the small little, uh, recording studio in Burbank called the Red Zone. And, you know, my uh, my actual lounge here at my house on the farm is bigger than the whole studio that uh, we recorded in. Oh, oh. So now, Mark, crazy. Mark, who's Andy Chappell? Was he an in-house engineer at uh, one of the studios he we recorded? A, he, was a, he was a live engineer that uh, we brought into the studio. And... Uh, you know, he was just a live guy. Hmm. He seemed to got great sound out of you guys for that record. Um, I, I think it was, it, it was, I think it was more Dana, honestly, than it was Andy. I think Andy was present in it, but uh, I really do think it was more of Dana's touch than it was Andy's, quite honestly. Hmm. You know, Dana, Dana's a pretty versed engineer and, you know, it, it's funny because the current band that Jeff Blando, who, who's on guitar, he's a he was our front of house engineer when Tim died. He did front of house live sound for us, and so you have all these engineers and producers within this band. It's it's uh, uh, it's pretty crazy when you look at it that way because it's uh, you know a lot of creative force here. Huh. Now, I've spoken to many producers, and a lot of them will tell me that they don't really like to co-produce because it can cause issues. Did you and Dana butt right. heads at all co-producing this record? No, not at all. Not at all. Everything, we had the same vision all the way through. The, the, the vision ultimately was to have songs that, that emotionally connected to, you know, to people. You know, it was about the songs. It wasn't about the talent show. It wasn't like, hey, we'll do this vocal here and they'll have this screaming lead. It was always about the songs and focused on the songs because really, if you look at the Beatles or anybody that's had that longevity, it was ultimately it was about really well-written songs that emotionally uh, would charge people, you know, in their lives. Hmm. Now, the lyrics on the record, did you write them all, or did, was it a combination of you and Dana? Oh, it was a combination. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I, I would write I would write lyrics, and uh, it was really one of those things of, would I say that as a person? Do I believe that as a singer? Because I think that the most important thing for every singer is to write lyrics that are believable to sing. And, you know, as we were the writers and producers of it, we were able to kind of make it to where it was very believable as a uh, singer for me to sing those songs because, you know, it was me. Oh. Now, Mark, you'd you'd just come from Vinnie Vincent Invasion, named after Vinnie, and now you're in a band called Slaughter. Um, was it named after you because of the record deal, or was there other names considered and you just chose that one? No, there, there was other names considered. What had happened uh, was that 
we couldn't think of a name that wasn't taken. And uh, it was actually the witching hour. We called, we started calling it um, Slaughterhouse as, a, as kind of a default. And then there was a band called Slaughterhouse. So we're like, well, okay, so uh, uh, what are we going to call it? And we had loaded dice and all these really stupid names, <laughs> you know, yeah. being from Vegas, you know. But it was like at the, at the witching hour, the the attorney calls up and said, look, you know, we got to come up with the name. Uh, I researched your last name, Mark, and it's not taken. So why don't we just go with your last name and then we'll be done with this. And, you know, it was a lot of pressure on me. Um, as an artist, because if it failed, then I was always known as the the failed slaughter guy. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, so we went with it, and it was successful. So it worked out okay. Mark, did you use any of the demo recordings on the finished product that you couldn't recapture the the, the spark on the demos? No, no, we did not. Um, we the only time we really did that was our demos was uh, Fear No Evil was probably the first time when we did that record 25 years ago. That was kind of a demo recording process of, of uh, there's a song called Breakdown and Cry that, that, that the vocal performance was just honest. So that's the only time that we ever like stuck with something that was a demo. Hmm. Were were Tim and, and Blass on the demos, or are they just you and maybe a dr- you and Dana with just a drum machine? No, we did it collectively. We oh. we always did it together. You know, oh. um, it's very it was very important for us all to be involved and to put our um, our uh, spin on it. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it was it was it was all of us involved. Hmm. Now, how many extra songs did you write and record for the album? Not many, not Um, many, not many. The only, the only two that were now, since we're talking about stick it to you, the only two that were not put on the actual first record was move to the music and days gone by. Okay. And they were on the next one. Yeah, they were on the next one and move to the music. Uh, we actually, uh, Bob Ezrin put on a Japanese band. I think it was EVO. um, and he changed the the chorus. He made the it was a minor song, and he ended up making it major in just the chorus. Oh. So uh, he's, you know, that's uh, the only time we ever uh, you know had one of our songs outside besides the Bill and Ted's thing. Yeah. Um, at that point. Now recording the record. Did Blas and Dana record together as a rhythm section and then you added the guitar and the vocals on top of that or was everything done separately? Everything was kind of, we, we would play it down, but we would always individually come back to it to make it right. We okay. always, we'd always, we're, we're perfectionists. So we always like, again, if there's a vocal that it did a certain thing, you know, Dana was in the Paul McCartney mindset of doing things and make sure that it would the the bass line would work with the vocal. Hmm. Very different bass player than just you know a lot of bass players who just play root and stuff. He really kept in mind of where the melody was going and how the bass would would weave in and out of the vocal part. Hmm. How did he push you? How did Dana push you in the studio as a producer? Then, like, was he really hard on you when, on your vocals? No, I wouldn't say he was hard. I think he was a, a, a you know a bandmate. He was he always wanted the the best performance and, and, uh, he would keep the character of, for instance, you know, Motown and the things that I'd have influence, he'd say that sounds a little bit too, too Motown. In other words, it would sound too, a little overly soulful for what we were doing. Mm. So he would say, you know, I think you should pull it back a bit and I'd go, okay. You know, so, I, you know, which is which is fine. I mean, that was you know he kept the 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 current theme all the way through and positive in that side collectively. You know, from what he did. Oh. Mark, what were the hardest songs for you to nail down in the studio on that first record? Yes. Um, let's see. What was the hardest? I had a harder time singing in lower registers than higher registers. 
So it was like the lower mids were were more difficult and more pitchy to me than the higher stuff. Higher oh. stuff was just a natural. I've always had a I was a natural tenor. So, you know, I, I sang high then and you know, I still have a high voice now. So it's just kind of a natural thing. And and so singing in a in a lower timber was not was not easy for me. Mm. I had a good range, but it wasn't as, it wasn't it wasn't as uh, I should put it developed. Let's put it that way. Mm. One of the things that appealed to me about this record when it came out, and I'm sure a lot of people said it to you at the time, the sound of it. It wasn't full of reverb. It didn't sound overproduced, which was the trend for everybody to do at the time. It was really. It's interesting. It was a combination of. The bands that that I mentioned, which is Zeppelin, Beatles, um, we we went with uh, uh, with the drums that were more synthetic, um, more like uh, Def Leppard, and the the drums of that late '80s, you know, was really kind of a processed drum. But we, you're right, we didn't over reverb it. We really kept it to where the songs were close to the. To the, it was a smaller venue, so to speak, than a big, large venue of, of a big snare drum. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're you're dead on with that. Hmm. Now, when the record was handed into the label, um, what what did you want for the first single? Um, the first single we wanted up all night. And we felt it, it, it was it was what we fought for. Um, they, I think they wanted like eye to eye or something like that. And we're like, that's not a, that's not a single. That's not a, you know, we're, it, it, that's not what the band was. We wanted to go immediately to a song. It was a harder edge song, but it was, it, it was, it had a hook. It had an anthemic thing. Hmm. And ultimately that's what we went with. Okay. Who does the voices at the end of that? It's like a, a kid's choir or something. Uh, we uh, there was a there was a uh, school that was really close to the red zone in Burbank, and uh, I said we need kids on this. I said we need kids singing up all night. I said you know it's almost that Alice Coopery uh, add younger voices and make it you know or 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 Pink Floyd the Wall. You know when you bring outside influences and things that are not just so controlled, I think it makes an album more global and bigger. So Dana said to Scott, our you know, tour manager at the time, he went over to the school and spoke to the music department and said, listen, we'll go ahead and do a, you know, we'll donate to your school for your music department and you kids just come over and sing and and uh, it'll be real simple. We'll just do a chorus, and that's what we ended up doing. That's what we used. Nice. The second single that was released, of course, was the big one, uh, Fly to the Angels. What's your memories of writing and recording that uh, that song? Um, well, writing the song was, was uh, uh, during uh, Vinnie Vincent time. I had a uh, girlfriend of mine from high school that passed away, and uh, I I had the... The chorus in the in the you know heaven awaits your heart and flowers bloom in your name because there's you know in the funeral there was just flowers everywhere so that was one of the things that stuck with me as far as the body of that song and then when we ended up recording it I wanted that same melancholy thing of losing someone but I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't something that was glamorizing suicide or something like that, but it was more of a song of healing. So that was really, you know, it was a real conscious thing for me to write the lyrics that were about that. And ultimately, when we released the track, we were on the road with Kiss at the time, which is exactly 30 years ago, because it was you know, May 4th is when we did our first show with Kiss. Uh-huh. And and uh, the song was out. It had great traction. When we did the video, which is about a month before we went on the road, uh, I was I was wearing Gene Simmons' uh, bomber jacket because we couldn't find one that was right. And, the, <laughs> and uh, I guess a wardrobe girl knew Gene and said, "Well, why don't we just get one from Gene?" And 
And, uh, and that's what we did. We just, I borrowed his jacket and he just wanted it back. And I'm sure he's got that in his closet somewhere. Mark, when that song brokey, more, more or less brokey big time, were you guys worried that you'd be tagged along with the other bands in that era as, as a ballad band? Well, I mean, ballads were what was connecting to people anyway. It was a power ballad time. That's what was, was happening. That's what people were attracted to. Um, so I wasn't really worried about it. I was, I was worried that we wouldn't have something that would connect. It was more of a worry to me. Mm. Now, the next single you released was uh, Spend My Life. Uh-huh. Um, were all the single choices from this record something you would have picked? Because the one after that was Mad About You. Right, right. And uh, Spend My Life was when the record label thought that there was something there. We would have gone directly to Mad About You. Um, but that was the record company thinking that they had another single in there. And it did well. It, you know, it was good. But Mad About You, I think, is of all the videos and all the songs, I think that was probably the best representation of what I thought the band was um, as a live band. I should say, hmm. I mean, the video, the video, the vibe, the whole thing. That was one where I finally felt like, okay, well, they got the characters of the band. People know who they are. They, they've got that. It finally connected to me at that point. Mm. The beginning of that song has a, a like a shuffle on it before it goes into the main part of the song. Was was the shuffle part a separate track that you hadn't finished, or or was or what? No, it was just kind of an intro thing that we did. Again, the influences of the different bands. I always loved like what Van Halen would do, and they would. There was a, a kind of a relationship between the guitar player and the drummer, and uh, you know Eddie and Alex Van Halen always had this amazing um, connect, and I, I, I kind of wanted to capture that live feel. That you know, there's just kind of that, that like you said, the shuffle, the feel, and then break through and then right into the psychosis of uh, of mad about you, you know, break into the things that are, you know, the uneasy, the un, uh, the whole mad about you thing is just a little bit of a twist to it, and uh, and it, it all it all ended up uh, con- being conveyed properly. Mark, did you enjoy making the videos? Or were they just a lot of hours, a lot of sitting around, a lot of waiting? They were a lot of hours. All of them were. Up All Night was a long time. Uh, well, we were looking for a director for Up All Night. We looked at all these different reels, and I, 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 you know, Dan and I were just like, we don't have the right person. We don't have the right person. We don't have the right person. Finally, I said to, to the manager, I said, look, just find me. The people who do like the Bud Light commercials, you know, I know how to capture the nightlife. I said, there's, there's a way of capturing the sexiness of, of the nighttime. That's who we need. So, you know, Bud Carr, who works with Oliver Stone, that's his, his uh, music supervisor, Bud, our manager, ended up uh, getting this guy. And we loved his reel. And we're like, okay, he's a guy. And, uh, he won all kinds of awards for that video. It was very well uh, taken uh, at the MTV, you know, one as as far as the, the video of the year, so to speak. And uh, and uh, you know, it's it's crazy that that uh, that it went that far. And and who is it that uh, that made that video? Do you know who that is? No. Same guy who did Pearl Harbor. Transformers. Oh, Michael Bay. Yep. Wow. That was his. That was his entrance into a lot of things. I think he did a winger video as well, didn't he? He did. He yeah. Did that. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so it was. It was a big change, and and uh, um, that was uh, that was the beginning of his whole thing. Wow. <laughs> so I, I'm assuming on the videos, Mark, that. The budgets on those was way bigger than it took to actually record the record. Oh, yeah. Like I said, $16,000 to record a record. And, you know, some of those videos were up to, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, and, and again, 
that you had to have a, a, it had to look like a movie. It had to look great. You know, look, in today's technology, there's a lot of ways that people are making great videos and stuff, but there was just, you know, when you get into the eye of people who are the, the some of the best movie makers at that time who are doing videos, I, I mean, there's it's hard to capture what those guys are doing. Mm, mm. So one of the tracks I love on this record, and it never, it's probably my favorite track, and it was never released as a single, was Burning Bridges. Can you tell me a little bit about writing uh-huh. that one? Um, Burning Bridges is written about... Um, it's written about the industry. It's written about people that we knew along the way that that uh, didn't treat others right, and and we really just wanted to write a song that that uh, um, is in the guy who had been through it all, had been through some rough times, but knew that you know karma would always take care of it, you know, and uh, you know we've all. We've all been there. We've all been screwed around here or there. And, and that was the, the, the song was written ultimately about uh, it'll be okay and it'll all come around to that person. Oh. And, you know, that's, the, that's how it was written. I'm sure you've had a lot of people ask you, is it directly about Vinnie Vincent? Um, a lot of people have asked. You know, the, the, the song wasn't really written about anybody in particular. In fact, there's a disclaimer in the record that wasn't about anybody. Um, we really just wrote the song about uh, just experience of us all going through that. Oh. Now, the other song on it, She Wants More, that started out is very like Whole Lot of Rosie. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. Th- and then it's like Van Halen. Yeah, I would say it kicks into the Van Halen thing. Again, that's part of where I came from as a guitar player. Um, yeah, it's a very, 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 it's got a funk bass to it, but, but it was distorted. Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it. Mm. That's not enough. It's got a great groove in it. I think that song was very Motown. It was very, that was, uh, really Aretha Franklin to me, you know, that type of, you know, Atlantic years, so to speak. Um, just really, you know, just had a had a soulfulness to it. Mm. And you are the one could have easily been a single as well. That was just uh, I was just like a song. It was one of those things that we weren't really like, uh, okay, we're going to do this and it's going to kick ass. It was just a song that we thought the song was, you know, connected. A lot of girls around the studio at the time really liked the song, so we're like, okay, well, that'll work. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And the other track I love on it is Desperately. That Again, that could have been a single, too. Desperately could have. When we got into, you know, the back half of the record, radio stations were like, we played enough slaughter. Uh, you know, we're, you know, they were tired of playing the band because we had been out for like a year and a half on that record. So, I mean, I think a lot of the radio stations were like, you know, we're not going to, they, they took that to FM radio desperately and they had a little bit of a run with it, but they never, you know, took it as a, as a real heavy single push. Oh, and the last track loaded. The last track loaded. Gone. Real up tempo track. The end. End of record. Yeah, very. Just an ass kicking rock song. You know, end of the night. You know, it's almost like a. You know, the the record was set up almost like a a rock set. You know, you have your intro and you have your outro, and your your intro has got this this vibe, and then the outro has just kick ass and thank you good night <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so that's that's really how the record was made is to from front to end to just really feel like a set of songs but relatable you know it wasn't like a live band set it was just relatable songs that took you through that experience mm. thinking of june the, the short instrumental who wrote that uh that was tim kelly he Came up with that. Uh, his sister, her name was June, and she died uh, of cancer in her 30s. And so he wanted to do like a little, you know, kind of a segue thing. 
um, for his sister. So that's uh, that's how we did that. Did you guys consider, in the running order, putting that before Flight to the Angels? Because there's thinking of June, and then it goes straight into She Wants More, which is an up-tempo rock song. Well, we thought about it, but if you put the two together, it's almost like it takes the the uh, excitement out of the record. Hmm. It takes you, it takes you down too far, you know. Yeah. Kind of like when you go to a set and everybody they start doing too many ballads, and you're like, "Hey, what do you say we go for a pint?" <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, you're, you know, you're like ready to go, like buy a t-shirt or a beer. You yeah, know, it's like. It, it, you really want to keep that momentum of excitement in a record. So that's what we did. When you and Dana were writing it, you you would have mapped out all the peaks and valleys you wanted on the record. Did you and Dana right. just write songs, or did you say, right, we need to have three fast songs, one ballad? Did you, did you even... We wrote songs. No, we did say, like, okay, so we need a medium tempo song here. So it would be like, okay, so we need... So we have this and this, and we need like an ass kicker. This is like what we'd say. Okay, well, so then we wrote, you know, Loaded Gun in the second phase of writing. So you, you see what I'm saying? We wrote for what we perceived the record to be as a whole, as opposed to just individual songs. Mm. Now the, the, it, was a body, it was a body of songs as opposed to just the individual songs. Mm. Now, the, the first show you did on this to promote this was the Kiss tour. Um, how did you get? How did you get on that tour? Ultimately, it was Eric Carr. He heard the record and thought it was great. We were starting to get uh, a buzz at MTV. Uh, dial MTV. People were requesting the video, so that started. Uh, you know, it was the fans that really pushed the band because MTV didn't even want to play the video. Hmm. They thought it was too sexist because there was girls in it. Um, <laughs> Believe it, believe it or not. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, there's an ang- there's somebody angry in that one. Uh, but, it, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we... Look, the the, the music of, of the band, we never played any of those songs live in clubs. We never went out there and, and, and uh, were playing in theaters, even with this band. We had all played in bands before. Obviously, Dana and I came from BVI prior. But the first time that we ever played a show was on the Kiss Tour. The very first show we ever did in front of people, besides a rehearsal hall, was on the Kiss Tour. Now, Mark, why did you not do any warm-up shows in a club? To be, you might even one or two. I think, I think there's something of a baptism by fire that you just kind of, you know, you don't just, you don't go sticking your toes in the pool and go, oh my goodness, it's cold. You know, you just jump in. And I, I just, I think that there's something, there's lessons learned by doing it that way. Sometimes it kicks your ass, sometimes you'll lose your breath with it being too cold. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that, you know, you, you go get your ass kicked a little bit and and I think it's uh, it, it creates a stronger character. And I think that's one thing I learned from DVI is that, you know, you go downtown and get beat up and you come out a stronger person. How much rehearsal did you do before the KISS show? About a week. Um, and and it wasn't a real solid rehearsal because we were bullshitting about buses and and how we're going to do this and who's going to do that and what amps we're going to play through and that amp sounds like shit. Let's try another <laughs> one. I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of, uh, you know, to try to get the set to come together as far as the sound of the record into a live thing. We hadn't done this yet. Only we played in the studio. That's the only time we did the songs together. So we were kind of relearning it as a band in the rehearsal hall. Yeah. Now, you and Dana would have done arena shows with Vinnie Vincent. Like you went out with Iron Maiden, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know about the size of venues Tim and Blass had played in. Were you worried about their stage presence at all? Is that something he talked about? Yes. Yes, we did. Well, Blass already had like a thing the way he moved. And Tim, (laughs) Tim, we told him, almost like a James Brown thing. We still laugh about this day. He would be focused on playing guitar and he'd just stand there. And we said, we're going to treat you like James Brown would treat his band. 
And if you don't lift your legs every uh, every five seconds, you don't lift your legs, um, we're going to dock your pay. <laughs> <laughs> so what, 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 that was kind of funny. He almost ended up with like this English young kind of march thing that he did. <laughs> And you know we laughed about it, but you know it was it was him. It was you know that was it was a very adequate way of of Tim. It was just Tim. Mm. What was the first song you played live in the set? Can you remember? Mad about you. Okay. Was the first song. And did the whole I was behind the amps, and and it would be the whole intro thing, like what we did, and then I'd come screaming "Mad about you" over and jump off the amps every night. Okay, and the first show in Lubbock, Texas, can you guess how many people were in the audience when you went on stage? About 11,500. 11, Was that all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it probably went by in a yeah, blur. And, blur. and here's, here's the craziest part. We came off the stage, first show, band never played live. We go in our dressing room. There's our record label president, um, John Sykes. Not the owner, Chris Wright. He was in England. But John Sykes, and he said, well, boys, you did it. And he handed us all gold records on our first gig. Do you still have them? I do. Nice. And I looked at Dane. I looked at Dane at that time, and I said, well, I think we did something right. And he goes, I think so. And <laughs> that was, you know, that was kind of, that was our spirit of that tour. And, and Kisses, you know, Hot in the Shade record was a great record forever, you know, the Michael Bolton and Kiss song. That was such a great, you know, there's a lot of great songs there. So, you know, it, it, it was a, it was a great era. It was a great vibe for us and for, for Kiss. And it was a good match. It was just a good time, good times all the way across the board. You know, who else was on that bill? Was it winger faster pussycat? I think, wasn't it? Winger was on it. Faster Pussycat was on it. And then later it was Trickster and Danger Danger open. We moved up into the middle slot. And, uh, you know, we did that for, you know, for a year. And then uh, we went out with Poison for about six months. Did you get to flesh and blood. Did you get to Europe? Um, you know, we went over to Europe uh, with, uh, with Cinderella. In fact, we quit the Kiss Tour. And we were going to go do a European tour. So we get over to, uh, we get to Europe and then the Gulf War happens. Uh. And then, uh, there's all these threats that were going on, bomb threats and, and, uh, and then Tom Kiefer, you know, and, and Cinderella's like, you know, we're done, you know, we're out of here. And, uh, you know, it wasn't our tour. We were, their guests at that time. And, uh, so we went, came back home and joined back up on the kiss tour. They, they sure come on back. So we, we jumped back on the road with them. So and, you, you, uh, you didn't get to play a show in Europe at all. We did. We, we did, uh, the UK, we did Wales, but we never went into like Germany or, or any of that, uh, in those years. No. What about Japan? Did you hit Japan on the debut record? Um, debut record, yes. We we ended up uh, going to Japan. Okay, seems like it was a, a a lot of a lot of shows, a pretty long tour. It was a year and a half of constant shows. Yes. And how how did your voice and hold up? It was good. It held up really well. Um, you know, the hardest thing as a singer is to shut up. You know, because uh, that does more wear and tear on your voice believe it or not, than singing, because singing you're supporting correctly and you're focused on your vocal cords, and when you're talking, you just kind of get lazy or you yell or, you know what I mean? It's all Uh those other things that start to to cause, um, uh, diminishes it, you know, so um, I, I've learned, and, and you know, I'm here. I am thirty years later, still, still doing it. Mm. Mark, how do you stay grounded when an album blows up like that? Very successful. You're all over MTV. You're a young guy. You probably have a lot of things being thrown at you. And um, how, how did you keep a level head? Um, I think that we all kept each other level, and I think ultimately, um, I think that. Uh, I think we are very well aware that uh, uh, there's plenty of other talent out there. We're we're not that special. We're, we were we wrote some good songs, 
and we were a, a good part of the musical of that time frame. But it's like I think that we, I think we just know that uh, I think we're all perfectionists. So the fact that you're perfectionist, you're always striving for better. So I think that that striving for a better uh, performance, whether it be live or on, in the studio was probably the biggest drive for us. And we, none of us were drinkers. None of us did drugs. So we were really focused on, A, the music, and B, we actually really enjoyed people. You know, we were a people band. We we would bring people backstage, and the headliners would be like, why is there 300 people backstage? And we'd be <laughs> like, well, they're our friends. <laughs> Mark, I just got... I got- I got two questions before I leave you go. Um, okay. The Stick It Live EP that was recorded on that tour, uh, whose, right. whose idea was it to do that? Well, it was funny because of all things, it was actually the UK and some of the writers of Kerrang! and these people, because they knew that Dana and I, we put the band together in the studio, said that the band was not a live band and it was all smoke and mirrors. So we're like, you know what? let's just throw out like a mini EP of us doing some of those songs so that we could prove that it's a live band and it's a real entity. And so, you know, we were only a couple months in when we did that, but I think it was really important for us to put something out there that represented the band so that they knew, Oh, okay. So they can do that live and it's not uh trickery, you know, is it, is it a hundred percent live or did you have to fix any of it? Um, we had to fix some of the audience. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously there's no live record. That's just completely live. You, you know, you, you embellish, you try to get a better at a snare or try to add different, you know, drum tones or other stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, you're always trying to make it the best you can. And obviously the audience, you, you know, even Peter Frampton comes alive, which is the greatest, one of the greatest records of all time was, you know, it was it was pushed and pulled here and there, but that's what makes it exciting. You feel like you're there, you know. Mm. So. Final question, Mark. Where would you rank the debut slaughter record in the band's catalog? I would say I would say it was my favorite due to the fact of emotionally it changed my life more than the others. Okay. So is it a better record? You know, as a writer, as a producer, and as a performer, I always look at every child, which every song that you do is like a child. It's still yours, but you you have to let it breathe and go where it goes. And even if it's not successful, you love it just the same. So I don't have like, this is my absolute favorite, and oh my God, or why didn't this happen, or this... I think that you just let the river flow as it flows and accept, um, you know, what, what happens and, and, and how it goes. I mean, you can't emotionally get caught up into something that doesn't deliver or does deliver more than others. Hmm. Well, Mark, do you want to give out the social media sites where people can get in touch with you? Absolutely. Uh, there's uh, Mark Slaughter Official. Um, on Instagram, and I think it's the official Mark Slaughter on Facebook, markslaughter.com, also slaughterusa.com, and uh, that's pretty much where, where I'm at. Uh, Mark Slaughter 33 on Twitter, but I'm not on. I, it's hard to keep up with the social media side. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, I try to live so that I can write with, with, uh, with, uh, how should I put it? I can write about things if I'm on social media, then it just becomes everybody else's experience. Mm. Mark, I think the hardest question sometimes I ask the guests are to name their social media sites because uh, some of them can read them off straight away, and others it's like, oh my God, that's the toughest question you've asked me because there's so many of them. Right, right. Well, you know, there's it, it, that's, uh, <laughs> That's the world in which we live. You know? True, true. So, are you writing now for another solo record, or, or what are you working on? Yeah, I, I'm working on some more material. You know, it's funny. I've gone. You know, you start 
you really revisit a lot of where you came from. As you get older, you come back into influences. You go, man, I can't believe it. That's like that. But, uh, you know, I, I think I'm just writing songs. I don't know if it's going to be a record or if I'm going to put out a bunch of singles. Uh, I, I'm just making music. And as, as it, as it comes, I'll put it out. But, you know, the, the years of like, here's how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to market it and do this and do that. I, it's, those days have completely changed. Mm. I take it there's no cha- there's no chance you're doing a new slaughter record then. I would love to do a record, but it's really getting everybody in the same in the same side and and, and really doing it. You know, there's a lot of people in lockdown that are doing things that way. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think I'm I think I'm the only guy that is, has a functioning studio that's on every day. Okay, um, as a band. Have, See, everybody does have one, but I'm the only one that turns it on every day. Have you Have you guys talked about maybe even doing a song or two or an EP rather than doing a full length record? Yeah, we talked about doing a song or two for sure. Hmm. You know, that's one of the things we talked about because, you know, again, the collective. Daniel's got a he's got a, a young kid, and and uh, Lando's got a, a couple girls. Uh, uh-huh. So you know, they get into the family world, and you know, my kids are. 25 and 23 and you know i'm i'm <laughs> you know i'm in my own little world here you know i have uh, mark i've got a i've got a five-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy so my hands are full <laughs> there you go yeah i know so, i mean you get it so yeah. i can't really just say okay hey guys why can't you get do you know I, I i've been there so i understand it but uh what a beautiful thing, man. Well, congrats. That's great to have a family, man. It really is. Mm. Well, Mark, you've given me more than enough time. Love the band. Love this record. I loved it for 30 years. So thanks for giving me so much well, time and talking you. about it. You know what? And thank you for your passion in the questions. You know, I, I appreciate it, man. You know, it, it, it really means a lot to me, the fact that, that, that you care to know those songs and, and, you know, the influences that you picked up. I mean, you're really... You're very, uh, uh, very aware of, of of where things came from, and again, we don't run from our influences; we embrace it. I, I you know, I always look at this thing and go, "Man, that's like the Jeff Beck thing," and this is like that. I mean, it's what you love; it's it's who you are and the environment, your environment, who makes you who you are. So, mm. thank you for recognizing that. And anytime we're out and about, or you want to come see the band. Uh, hopefully we'll be making it over to your neck of the woods, but, uh, always reach out, you know, and, uh, you know, I do make it up to that neck, neck of the woods often. My uh, guitar builder and strap builder, Eddie Carlino is right there in Boston. Oh, nice. You know him? I don't, but my co-host, the last time I spoke to you, when you started talk, mentioning his name, he was like, oh my God, wow. Cause he, he know he plays guitar, but I don't play an instrument. Right. Yeah, you, you, Eddie's a great, he's a great human being. You know, he really is just, just salt of the earth. So, you know, like I said, uh, anytime, you know, you just let me know, reach out to Jody or reach out to me. You've got all the, the staff to do so. And, uh, um, you know, again, I really appreciate your passion for, Thanks, uh, for not, not only our music, for, for all music, man. It really it, it shows a lot. All right, Mark. Well, have a good rest of the day. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. Same here. Take care of those kids. Give them a big hug. I will, Mark, always. All right, my friend. Thank you. Bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, there you go. Probably everything uh, you ever wanted to know about the first Slaughter release. Stick it to you. So we definitely enjoyed the time off for the uh, month of July and a good chunk of August, but uh, the show must go on, so we are back at it once again, making more episodes of Focus on Metal for your weekly listening pleasure. We've already got a few weeks of audio in the bank, and I'm sure that within the next few weeks that uh, there's going to be some more interview stuff coming in. Uh, Richie just really took the whole time off, didn't do any interviews or anything, just tried to actually get some rest, some relaxation, enjoy life, all that good stuff. But uh, like I said, I think that, uh, you know, now that the scab is ripped off again and we are back in action, that uh, there will definitely be more stuff coming your way. So hope you guys have been uh, being safe out there. And uh, just remember that we'll be back at you again next week with more good stuff. But until then, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again, 
Remember. Focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.